1 Corinthians chapter 7. What a chapter we have before us tonight. Uh, There are so many significant things to speak about in this chapter. We may not even make it all the way through 1 Corinthians 7 tonight. We'll go for an hour and see how far we get. But you need to understand the uh, context that Paul is speaking from, writing to the Corinthians. Uh, Look at chapter 6 beginning at verse 18, just to kind of get the flow of Paul's thought. He says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price... Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, one of the many problems in the Corinthian church and in the Corinthian culture was a rampant approval of sexual immorality. The Corinthian culture was notorious, and not just in the city of Corinth, but all over the Greek and Roman world. But the city of Corinth in particular was known for its loose living for its sexual immorality. Now, sort of keep that context in mind as we come in now into the first verse of chapter 7, where Paul writes and says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the first few words of that verse, concerning the things which you wrote to me, lets us know that chapter 7 begins a section where Paul will deal with specific questions that were asked to him in a letter by the Corinthian church. We're very familiar with the idea that the apostles wrote letters to the churches, right? That's what we're reading right now. We don't often consider that sometimes the churches would write letters to the apostles. And the Corinthian Christians wrote a letter to Paul and they said, hey, Paul, we've got a lot of questions. We've got a lot of things that we're wondering about Can you please enlighten us? Can you please inform us? And the first thing he lays out, the first question he's going to answer, and by the way, this is sort of the structure of chapter 7. Throughout chapter 7, there are several different questions that Paul will answer. Now, it's a little bit tough. It's like playing Jeopardy. You know, you have the answer flashed up on the screen, and you have to ask the question. So I think verse 1 speaks to us concerning what this first question is, where Paul says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now here, touch is used in the sense of having sexual relations. And this was probably a statement made by the Corinthian Christians. They were probably asking Paul and saying, Paul, uh, you know, in light of all the rampant sexual immorality, because of how corrupt our culture, our city, our society is, Don't you think it's better if a man not touch a woman, and they mean touch in a sexual sense? And they were asking Paul, Paul, do you agree with this? Now, Paul will agree with the statement. He says there in verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He will agree with it, but not without an important reservation. And that's where we come to verse 2, where he says, nevertheless... Nevertheless means despite what I just said. In other words, Paul says, you're right. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, look at verse 2 now. 
because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, I want you to see in context here what the Corinthians were suggesting to Paul in their question. They wrote to him a letter and they said, Paul, uh, we think it's good that a man not touch a woman. And Paul says, I'll agree with you in a limited sense. Because you know how the Corinthians meant it? And this was probably included in their fuller letter to him. They meant even within marriage. You see, the Corinthians were suggesting to Paul complete celibacy. Even between married couples. And probably their thinking went like this. Listen, sexual immorality is such a danger, it's such a problem in our city, in our culture, then we think a person can be even more pure if they abstain from sex altogether, even within marriage. So Paul, is it right that a man not touch a woman? And Paul says, yeah, except if you're married. Then Because of the danger of sexual immorality, he says in verse 2, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. In other words, in light of the danger of sexual immorality, which by the way, this danger has not passed with the Corinthian culture, has it? In light of that danger, it is appropriate for a husband and wife to have each other in the sexual sense. When Paul says in verse 2, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband, he means have in a sexual sense. Now please understand, Paul is not commanding the Corinthian Christians to get married. He's going to deal with that later on. He's saying live like you're married, especially in the sexual sense. Paul is saying that husbands and wives should be having sexual relations. It's very simple what he's saying. Now, let's understand what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that sex is the only reason for marriage or that it's the most important reason for marriage. Paul is simply asking, they're answering, I should say, their specific question about whether or not it's more holy, more spiritual for a Christian couple who are married to abstain from sexual relations. Now he's going to build on this point beginning at verse 3. He says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now you see, Paul is saying instead of the idea that a man should not touch a woman within marriage, instead, he says in verse 3, that a husband must render to his wife the affection due her. It is wrong for a husband to withhold affection from his wife. Did you see how he worded it here? He says, the affection do her. 
Now, I believe Paul meant this to apply to every Christian marriage, don't you? I mean, I don't think he was thinking of just a few Christian marriages. I think he said this is how Christian marriage should be. What Paul is saying is that every wife is due affection. Every wife. Paul doesn't just say if your wife is young or pretty or submissive or nice to you, then she is due affection. You know, if she makes a nice meal or if she does all these other things, then she's due affection. No, Paul just simply leaves it at this. Husbands, you have a duty to your wives, and that's to show affection to her. But then Paul also emphasizes what the woman needs. Notice what he said. He didn't just say sexual relations, but he said, render to his wife the affection due to her. If a husband is having sexual relations with his wife, but without true affection towards her, he is not fulfilling this command. He is not giving his wife what is due to her. By the way, let us notice also the way the Holy Spirit words it here by saying the affection due her. It reminds us that when a couple is unable, perhaps for physical reasons or some other reason, when a couple is unable to have a complete sexual relationship, they can still have an affectionate relationship and a husband can still render to his wife the affection that is due to her. Now, on the same idea, also, he says in verse 3, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife is not to withhold marital affection from her husband. Now, can we just say very honestly what this is saying? Now, friends, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up tonight just to get a big tape order from this sermon. <laughs> this is what the Bible's saying here. Paul is strongly putting forth the idea that there is a mutual sexual responsibility in marriage. Husbands, you have an obligation to your wife to show affection to her, and wives, you have obligations towards your husband in the same area. This isn't an option. This isn't just, well, whenever you might feel like it, and most of the time you don't, or sometimes you do, and this or that. No, you have responsibility. Before God, you have obligations. And notice where the emphasis is. He says, let the husband render to his wife. It doesn't say, let the husband expect from his wife. Notice how Paul and the Holy Spirit put the emphasis. The emphasis is on giving. It's on I owe you instead of you owe me. Friends, in God's heart, the sexual relationship in marriage is to be on a much higher level than merely being the husband's privilege and the wife's duty. God has a much, much higher call for the sexual relationship within marriage. And if you think he hasn't said it strongly enough, take a look at verse 4. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Can you imagine how a modern feminist at the end of the 20th century would read that? To say that a woman does not have authority over her own body. 
or how a male chauvinist pig would look at that in any century. Husband, you don't have authority over your own body either. Ladies and gentlemen, these, fact, these obligations are so concrete that it can be said that the wife's body doesn't even belong to herself. And the same principle is true of the husband in regard to his wife. Now, please, let's understand that this does not and never can justify a husband abusing or coercing his wife, either sexually or otherwise. Paul's point here is that we have a binding obligation to serve our partner with physical affection. And friends, I don't know if you're married or if someday you will be, you need to consider this carefully. What are there on the earth right now? Five or six billion people? Ladies and gentlemen, there are billions and billions of people on this planet. God has chosen one person and one person alone to meet your sexual needs, and that's your spouse. That's it. There is to be no one else. You can have somebody uh, clean your house, do your laundry, wash your car, make a living. There's a, a, virtually everything else in a marriage relationship, in a living relationship, uh, rightfully or otherwise, it could be hired out to do, but not this aspect. And that's why when we fail in our responsibility, we're really letting our spouse down. And that's why Paul says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Going on now into verse 5, notice what he says. He says, do not deprive one another. Except, okay, he's going to give us an exception. All right, let's, let's hear your exception. But let's just stick with that phrase first, maybe. Do not deprive one another. You see, for some reason, the Corinthian Christians, and probably because of the rampant sexual immorality of their culture, they had gotten it into their minds that a husband and wife could be more holy by sexual abstinence. In fact, Paul says, harm can come when you deprive one another Did you notice this? He says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except for consent at a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. Why? So that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Friends, instead of being more holy through sexual abstinence in marriage, you're opening yourself up for a spiritual downfall, both you and your partner. I want you to think of something right here in verse 5 where he says, do not deprive one another. Get that word deprive in your mind. Now, put your finger there and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 6, 8. Here he's talking about two Christians who were involved in some kind of business deal and it went bad and one was suing another. Look at what he says in verse 8. No, you yourselves do wrong and defraud. Deprive in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 is the same word for defraud in 1 Corinthians 6, 8. It means to cheat somebody. It means to shortchange them. When we deny physical affection and sexual intimacy to our spouse, we're cheating them. So what does he say? He says, do not deprive. Now I could 
just see some uh, frustrated husband going up to his wife say, well, you can't deprive me. Well, husband, let me ask you, are you depriving your wife the affection due her in the marital relationship? You see, sexual deprivation in marriage has not only to do with frequency, but with romance also. This is why Paul tells husbands to render to his wife the affection that's due her. And either kind of deprivation will give occasion to the deprived one to look elsewhere for fulfillment. A wife looking for affection outside of the marriage, a husband looking for sex outside of the marriage. And I think it's fascinating what Paul says here in verse 5. When he talks about Satan tempting you, look at the end of verse 5, because of your lack of self-control. Wouldn't it be easy to think that you're showing self-control by abstaining from sex within marriage? Look how much self-control I have. No, Paul says you're showing a lack of self-control when you're depriving one another of this in marriage. And it's a lack of self-control that will leave one easy to be tempted by Satan. Now, does Paul approve uh, abstinence within marriage in any circumstance? Yes, in a limited circumstance. Look at verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. First of all, there has to be consent, right? It's not just one partner making up their mind. Secondly, he says, for a time. It's only for a limited duration, He says an established period of time. And he says, and if you're going to do it, and to do it to seek the Lord without any kind of distraction or anything, then you better be serious about it and bathe the whole time in fasting and prayer. And then he says, when you're done with that specific time, come together again. But notice what he says in verse 6. He says, but I say this is a concession, not as a commandment. In other words, he's like saying, listen, if you nutty Corinthians really think that you can be more spiritual by abstaining from sex and marriage, well, go ahead. You can do it for a brief period of time, but then you better come together again. But I'm not commanding you to. I'm just sort of making a concession to your almost weird ideas about spirituality. Now, before we go on to verse 7, there's a very important principle that Paul hasn't spoken of specifically here, but he's certainly alluded to it. Friends, the principle in this passage is important. God makes it clear that there is nothing wrong and everything right about sex in marriage. You know, Satan has a tremendous strategy, I think. It's really a clever strategy and very, very effective. And you'll know what I'm talking about as soon as I say it. When it comes to sex... Satan wants to do everything he can to encourage it outside of the marital commitment. And then he wants to do everything he can to discourage it inside of the marital commitment. And can I just tell you that it's an equal victory for Satan if he succeeds, if he succeeds either place. Friends, if you're a married person and your sexual relationship isn't what it should be before the Lord, don't settle for that. You go before God and pray and ask that God would make it what it should be before him. Because God intended this area of your life to be a blessing for you and Satan wants to rip you off and rob you in that area of your life. 
Now, a, a, a Christian husband and wife simply must not accept a poor sexual relationship. The problems that they have may not be easily overcome. They may not be quickly solved. But God wants every Christian marriage to enjoy a sexual relationship that is a genuine blessing instead of a burden or a curse. Now, Paul is sort of done talking about this specific issue. Now he's sort of going on to another issue beginning at verse 7. He says, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul here is recognizing the benefits of marriage. That's what he's been speaking of in the first six verses. But now in verses 7, 8, and 9, he also wants to say, listen, there's also some benefits to singleness. And he begins these verses in verse 7 by saying, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. Paul, at the time of this writing, was unmarried. And here he is recognizing the benefit of being single. Now, I could go on in a great deal about this to you and, and talk to you about this, about why I believe that Paul was married at one time. And by the way, I just believe that from the scriptures, I don't have any doubt about it. I believe that Paul was married at one time. And uh, we don't know what happened to his wife. Maybe she left him. Maybe she died. We don't know. But I think the Bible's pretty clear that Paul was married at one time, but now he was not. And speaking in regard to his present state of singleness, he says, hey, I wish that, that everybody could enjoy the benefits that I enjoy in being single. But notice what he says there in verse 7. He says, but each one has his own gift from God. See, my friends, Paul knew that singleness was good for him, but he would not impose it on anyone. Paul wouldn't go around saying, hey, it's good for me to be single, so you should too. No, Paul says, listen, it just depends on what gift you have from God. Some people have the gift to remain unmarried and to be single. Some people do not. I want you to notice this, that Paul regards both marriage and singleness as gifts from God. Isn't it interesting how few people really understand that and receive that in their lives? Honestly, now, many people suffer under the sort of grass is greener trap. Singles wishing, wishing, wishing that they were married. And there's not a few married people out there wishing, wishing, wishing that they were single. And, oh, wouldn't it be? Oh, look at all the benefits. Look how much better. Oh, and the single proud thinks how much better their life would be if they were only married. And there's some married people, not a few out there, think, oh, how much better my life would be if I was single. Can I just tell you that the Bible tells you that each state, either married or single, it's a gift from God? And understand that. And to be single or married, requires a special gifting from God. When Paul writes here in verse 7 and says, each one has his own gift from God, you know he uses the same word for gift that he uses in 1 Corinthians 12 for a spiritual gift? 
Say, Lord, I didn't pray to receive that spiritual gift. (laughs) Hey, listen, the Lord knows what you need. The Lord knows what's right for your life. Each state, either to be married or single, needs a special gifting from God to work. Friends, look, let's just wipe away this fantasy land approach. And many people get caught in this trap. They think that there's some perfect state in life. Can I just tell you right now that there's certain advantages to being single and there's certain disadvantages to being single. There's certain advantages to being married. There's certain disadvantages to being married. Friends, it's a trade-off. What matters is how God has gifted you and what God is directing you to do. Don't let Satan rip you off with this romantic idea that there's some perfect life out there for you and it's different from the place you're in right now. That's a tool of the devil to get you to marry unwisely or to disgracefully ditch your husband and wife in pursuit of some vain dream. Now, I think this is also especially interesting to notice that Paul says that it can be a gift to be single. And why I think this is interesting is because we know that Paul grew up as an observant Jew, and we know that much of the church in the first century was in this sort of Jewish culture. There was a Gentile culture in there also, but there was definitely a Jewish culture in there. Do you realize that in Jewish culture in the first century, they would never, ever say that singleness was a gift from God? Matter of fact, in Jewish culture at that time, they said that if a man hasn't been married by the time he's 20, he's in sin. And he could go to hell for that, they would tell you. I mean, they did not see singleness as a gift. Paul is introducing something that's totally different from the Jewish background in which he grew up in, and it's totally different from the Jewish background that many of the Christians grew up in. But it's the truth. He says, singleness is a gift. Now notice what he says, verse 8 again, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now again, I want you to notice that Paul's recommendation that some people should go ahead and marry because they burn with passion, it's not based on the idea of marriage being more spiritual. That's not it. It's a very practical concern. He says, well, listen, God has given a right arena for a person to express their sexual desires, and it's in the marriage relationship. So a godly sexual relationship within the covenant of marriage is God's plan for meeting our sexual needs. Now, again, Paul prefers the unmarried state for himself, but he doesn't want anybody to think that being married is more spiritual or less spiritual. And then he says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Friends, look, let's just look look at this very honestly. Paul recognizes marriage as a legitimate refuge from the pressures of sexual immorality. A person should not feel that they're immature or unspiritual because they desire to get married so as to not burn with passion. That's not unspiritual, that's biblical. Might I say also that It's my opinion here, you could take it for what you will, that Paul is not speaking about what we might consider normal sexual temptation. I mean, everybody, in some way, to some degree, is tempted sexually. 
I don't think Paul's talking about that normal run-of-the-mill thing. I think he's talking about someone who suffers from it in a greater level. John Calvin said, it's one thing to burn, another thing to feel heat. What Paul calls burning here is not merely a slight sensation, but being so aflame with passion that you cannot stand up against it. Paul says, if that's your case, it's better to marry than to burn. But might I give a caution here, and I know if the Apostle Paul was here and we asked him about this point, he'd say the same thing. If someone has a problem with lust, if someone has a problem with sexual sin, do not think that getting married will automatically solve your problem. Many a Christian man, many a Christian woman has been grieved to find that their ungodly lust for other people did not magically go away as soon as they got married. Friends, don't think that getting married is some kind of silver bullet for whatever sexual lust problems you have in your life. That's why you need to deal with it now and bring it into submission to Jesus Christ. Now, verse 10. He's sort of done talking about this issue of, you know, is it better to abstain from sex in marriage? He goes, no, it's not better. It's not more spiritual. He says, but there's advantages to being married, therefore, and there's also advantages to being single. Now, in verse 10, he's talking about something that's very relevant in today's church, divorce and separation for Christian couples. Look at verse 10. Now, to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Well, again, we're playing Jeopardy, aren't we? We have the answer. We don't have the question in front of us. But we can deduce from the answer that Paul gives that when he says, now to the married I command. I suggest to you that Paul is answering a question about two Christians getting divorced. He's moving on to another question now. He's already dealt with the first question in the first nine verses. Now he's dealing with the issue of two Christians getting a divorce. And he says, hey, let me deal with this situation. Two Christians want to get a divorce. What does he say? Verse 10, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Now, I think, again, it's probably based, the question comes from this Corinthian Uh, weirdness, thinking that it's more spiritual to abstain from sexual relationships. Okay, Paul, well, um, if I'm married to my husband, then I should uh, have a sexual relationship with him. But wouldn't it be more spiritual if I just divorced him? Right? I really want to serve the Lord. So shouldn't I just divorce my husband and give myself full time to the service of the Lord? They were thinking that it might be more spiritual to be single and to break up existing Christian marriages for the cause of greater holiness. And what does Paul say? Absolutely not. So he says, do not depart from your husband. Really, that answers the question, doesn't it? Now, come the what ifs. Well, Paul, what if? What if it's a terrible situation? What if... uh, what if my husband is, is bad to me? What if we're terribly unhappy? What if there's problems with the finances? What if there's this? What if there's that? What if there's a lot of problems, Paul? I think Paul speaks to two married Christians in verse 11. 
But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is to not divorce his wife. Paul, in addressing a marriage where both partners are Christians, says that they should not, indeed that they cannot break up the marriage in a misguided search for a higher spirituality. In fact, if one were to depart from their spouse, what are the options? You remain unmarried or you reconcile. Friends, this is heavy, isn't it? I think to get a full understanding of what Paul's teaching here and what the Holy Spirit is teaching, we need to connect this with the two specific grounds under which God will recognize a divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, Jesus very clearly says that a divorce can only be rightfully obtained before God in the case of sexual immorality. Now, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians here, in verse 15, Paul is going to add, by their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a second possibility for divorce, where an unbelieving spouse departs a believing spouse. But that's not what we're talking about here in verses 10 and 11, because they're both believers. And I would say also, we're not talking about the case of sexual immorality. Because Paul would understand that Jesus has already spoken about that. So we're not talking about sexual immorality. We're not talking about an unbeliever deserting their husband or wife. So friends, on any other grounds, God will not recognize the divorce even if the state does. And if God does not recognize the divorce, then that individual is not free to remarry. They can only be reconciled to their former spouse. Jesus said that the one who divorces for invalid reasons and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that if your divorce isn't legitimate before God, then you're still married. And if you go marry somebody else, you're committing adultery. Actually, you're committing bigamy. You're married to two people at the same time. Because as far as God's concerned, your first marriage was never dissolved. Now, do you understand what Jesus' disciples said when they heard this teaching and perceived how serious the marriage covenant was? Because the popular teaching in Jesus' day was, well, should I call it, no-fault divorce. The popular teaching in Jesus' day was pretty much, a couple can divorce each other at any time for any reason whatsoever. Literally, the rabbis taught that a husband could divorce his wife if she burned his breakfast. And the rabbis taught that not only was divorce allowed, but it was commanded. If you got a bad wife, God commands you to divorce her. Jesus said, no, 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 no. The scriptures say that divorce is only right in the case of sexual immorality. Now, again, we're not talking about the case of an unbelieving spouse deserting a believing spouse. That's spoken of later on in 1 Corinthians. But do you know what the disciples said when they understood how serious Jesus was about the marriage covenant? They said, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Amen. When I sit couples down from premarital counseling, you know, this is the first stuff I go over with them. I say, do you know what you're getting into? 
when you have this marriage covenant, you can't break it up for any reason. God only gives you very limited permission to break this marriage covenant. And if you break it up, or think you can break it up for any other reason, God isn't going to recognize it. So friends, if a person says, God just doesn't want me to be married to this person anymore. Oh, I've heard that one. I've heard the one, God brought someone better to me. Friends, they're wrong. They're not speaking from God at all. God never recognizes divorce for such reasons. Now, can we look back here at verse 11 again? He says, but even if she does depart. Friends, a Christian couple may, in fact, split up for reasons that do not justify a biblical divorce. It may be because of a misguided sense of spirituality. I mean, that's happened. Um, You know, it's more spiritual for me to serve God on my own, so I'm leaving my husband or my wife. It may be because of general unhappiness or constant conflict or abuse of some kind or misery or addiction or poverty. But Paul recognizes, without at all encouraging, that one might depart in such circumstances, but they cannot consider themselves divorced. They cannot consider themselves to have the right to remarry because their marriage has not split up for reasons that justify a biblical divorce. Now again, these problems may perhaps justify a separation, but the partners are expected to honor their marital vows even while they are separated. Because as far as God is concerned, they are still married. I just can't live with that man anymore. He's impossible. You know, I just can't take it anymore. I'm at my wit's end. It's absolutely impossible. Has he committed sexual immorality? No. Okay, you can't divorce him, but if you absolutely must, you can depart. You can separate from him, but don't think you can start making dates. Don't think you can file for divorce. Not before God, you can't. Don't think that you can just, uh, there is no cause for divorce of incompatibility or general unhappiness or anything like that in God's lexicon. And you're saying, David, are you saying that that man or that woman might have to live the rest of their life as a celibate, separate from their spouse, unmarried? Yes. Because that's how important God regards the marriage covenant. That it cannot be broken lightly. That it cannot be broken without proper cause before God. Friends, as far as God is concerned, they are still married because their marriage covenant has not been broken for what God considers to be biblical reasons. And is this a hard teaching? You better believe it's a hard teaching. And that's why Jesus' disciples, when they heard him say it, they said, it's better for a man never to get married then. Maybe that's the case. Do you realize what you're signing on for before God? That if your husband or your wife just becomes a total jerk and you can't stand them anymore and you just simply cannot endure to live with them anymore and just for your own safety, your peace of mind, you've got to get out of there, then please get out. But you're not leaving as a single person. 
you are still obligated to those marital vows. What are your choices? Look at verse 18. Remain unmarried or be reconciled. Those are your choices. Friends, I agree. This is a hard teaching. If I was making up the rules about divorce and remarriage, I probably wouldn't do it this way. But it's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's not up to the, to the state to tell us why a person can divorce. Friends, you can have a divorce that is recognized by the state of California, but not by God in heaven. And that's a lot more important. Now he goes on at the end of verse 11 and says, And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul applies the same principle to husbands as to wives. And I want you to notice he makes a distinction. In verse 11, he does agree that it's permissible, not recommended, but permissible for a wife to depart. But he distinguishes that from divorce. Paul is not saying divorce when he says depart. He means live together as married yet estranged. And might I make another, another very important point. Jesus did allow divorce in the case of sexual immorality, but he never commanded it. That was another error in the rabbinical teaching about marriage in Jesus' day. They said that if your wife's bad, you have a responsibility before God to divorce her. And Jesus said, no, God never commanded divorce. He permitted it. And he permitted it, why? Because of the hardness of our hearts. Now, what about divorce and remarriage when a Christian is married to an unbelieving spouse? Look at verse 12. He says, but to the rest... I, not the Lord, say, well, maybe we should just stop right there and consider what he's saying. You know, there are people who have taken this verse and say, well, I don't have to listen to Paul here. He's just speaking from his own opinion. He's not speaking from the Lord. He tells us right here. No, 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 no. Go back to verse 10. He says, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Do you know what Lord he's speaking about there in verse 10? He's talking about Jesus. Paul was well aware that Jesus taught on the issue of marriage and divorce. And Paul is just echoing the firm stand on marriage that Jesus took in Matthew chapter 19. Paul says, listen, this isn't original with me. I'm just applying what Jesus said in Matthew 19. That's all. I'm not, this isn't me. This is the Lord. Now, when he speaks in verse 12 and says, I, not the Lord, we shouldn't think that Paul is any less inspired by the Holy Spirit. He simply means that Jesus did not speak on this specific point. Jesus never spoke specifically on the point of a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. So Paul's going to speak to us on this specific point. But if Jesus did not speak on it, then Jesus' inspired apostle will. Now I want you to notice too, verse 12 begins by saying, but to the rest. In other words, he's addressed the couples or the, the, the families where both of them are Christians. Now the rest, he's going to address couples where one is a Christian and one is not. So he goes on here, verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now, there were some couples in the Corinthian church, married to unbelievers, 
who thought that they would be more spiritual if they were divorced. Look, I'm a believer. My husband, my wife isn't a believer. It's such a drag on my life. Man, surely I could serve the Lord better if I would just jettison this unbelieving husband and wife. Surely that's what you would want me to do, Lord, isn't it? No. No. Paul says, let him not divorce her. Oh, no, no, God can't be glorified if I'm married to an unbeliever. For the sake of spirituality, I should divorce them. Paul says, no, let him not divorce her. Now, the spiritual problems that are in a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, that is an urgent and valid reason for not to marry an unbeliever. But it is not a reason for ending an existing marriage with an unbeliever. Friends, can I just say again, don't marry an unbeliever. If you are single, don't marry an unbeliever. If you want to know why, I'll let you talk to dozens of people I know who are enduring the pain of a marriage where they're living for Jesus Christ and endeavoring to with all their heart and their spouse isn't. I'll let you talk to men whose wives aren't saved. I'll let you talk to wives whose husbands are not saved. And it's no way to live. Now, if we should not marry an unbeliever, can I counsel you on this? Don't date an unbeliever. (laughs) Hello? First of all, let's put out of our minds this worldly idea of recreational dating, of recreational romance. The Bible doesn't look at romance as recreation. It looks at romance in terms of courtship, of preparation for marriage. That's the purpose for romance. You shouldn't be dating people unless you have a desire to get married. Now, please, I'm not trying to say that on the first date, you know, Gee, I guess I got to marry you. I'm dating you. You know, wasn't that a great movie? Let's get married. No, 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 no. But you understand what I mean. You know the division in your heart. You know the kind of heart that says, I have no intention whatsoever of getting married. I just want to play the field for a while. No, that's not biblical. That's not godly. You say, no, I want to I see if the Lord will bring before me the right person. That's a different heart altogether. Don't date an unbeliever. Do you know why you shouldn't date an unbeliever? Because you might fall in love with them. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to fully consider that it's entirely possible for us to fall in love with a person that we really shouldn't fall in love with. And that introduces a whole other dilemma into your life. But Paul isn't talking about that. He's talking about a marriage right now where you have a believer and an unbeliever. Now, why, Paul? Why isn't it more spiritual for me to leave my unbelieving husband or for me to leave my unbelieving wife? Well, let's let him speak to us. Look at verse 13. He says, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. You see, why should a Christian try to keep their marriage with a non-Christian together? 
because God can be glorified in such a marriage and do a work through the believing spouse to draw the unbelieving spouse to Jesus Christ. Now, when we read sanctified in verse 14, we shouldn't think that it means that the unbelieving spouse is saved by the fact that they are married to an unbeliever. Wouldn't that be a wonderful plan of salvation? (laughs) Salvation by marrying a believer. No, it just means that they are set apart for a special working in their life by the Holy Spirit by being so close to a person who is a Christian. So that's one reason. God can do a great thing in your marriage. Don't give up on it yet. The other reason is at the end of verse 14. It says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Not only does the presence of a believing spouse do good for the unbelieving spouse, but it also does good for the children and great good because it says of them, now they are holy. Now this is an important passage because it tells us that if there is a believing parent in the home, before that child comes to an age of accountability, that that child is regarded as holy and accepted by God. It's a beautiful assurance that the children of a Christian parent are saved at least until they come to an age of personal accountability. And by the way, that age of personal accountability may differ for each child. But can I share with you something sobering? And friends, I'm, please, I don't mean to inflame anything here. I'm just trying to cut the scriptures straight. And if you disagree with me on this, please show me in the Bible where I'm wrong. We do have an assurance that the children of believers are saved. We have no similar assurance for the children of parents who are not Christians. In fact, I'll tell you, the sense of this text argues against it. How could Paul Paul say that it is a benefit to have a Christian parent in the home because now the children are regarded as holy if all children are regarded as holy. Then it's no benefit. As well, Paul says, otherwise your children would be unclean. In other words, saying that there is a difference in the eyes of God between the children of believers and non-believers. Friends, that's a very heavy thing. You might say to me, Pastor David, are you telling me that if I'm not a believer and my spouse isn't a believer? Because Paul said it's enough if one of them is a believer. But are you telling me that if I'm not a believer and my spouse isn't a believer, that my children are going to hell, at least until they come to an age where they can trust in Jesus Christ for themselves? I'm telling you that the scripture does nothing to tell you otherwise. And friend, maybe that's reason enough for you to come to Jesus Christ and trust in him tonight. If you won't do it for your own soul's sake, do it for the sake of your children so that they can be regarded as holy before God. And friends, I will say that the scriptures are at least unclear on this enough. We're not told enough about this subject to really say, well, we know it all from beginning to end, finally, and so forth. But I will say this, that if the children of non-Christian parents are saved, and if they do go to heaven, even if some of them go to heaven, it's important to understand that it is not because they are innocent. 
That's the way many people say. Well, that innocent little child, they'll go to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, as each and every one of us are born as guilty sons and daughters of guilty Adam, we are guilty as well. And if such children do go to heaven, which I will at least allow the possibility of, if such children do go to heaven, it is not because they are deserving innocence, but it is because God is rich in mercy, and that mercy has been extended to them. Now, what has Paul told us so far about a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever? He says, listen, keep it together. There's benefit in doing that, right? But notice what he's going to say now in verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Friends, Paul has counseled that the Christian partner should do what they can do to keep the marriage together. But if the unbelieving spouse refuses to be married, then the marriage can be broken. But this is not to be initiated by the believer. It's not to be sought by the believer. If the unbelieving spouse should depart, notice it, the Christian is not under bondage to the marriage covenant. Do you know what that means? It means you can remarry. You're not bound. Friends, let's understand something. When God looks down upon men and women, from heaven, he does not see three different categories. He doesn't see married, unmarried, and divorced, so you can't remarry again. No. As far as God's concerned, you are either bound to a marriage covenant, or you're not. If you're bound to a marriage covenant, then you're bound to it. If you are not bound to a marriage covenant, then you're free to remarry. And Paul says that if your unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage and requests it and wants it, let them go and you are no longer under bondage. You are free to remarry. You're not under bondage to the marriage covenant. Why? Because God has recognized your divorce as a valid divorce. Now, notice how he concludes this section with verse 16. It says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You know what I love about this passage? Paul concludes this section with a great deal of hope. You know why? Because I think many Christians who are married to unbelievers are discouraged. I know it's a very discouraging thing. I can't say that I know it by experience, but I know it from being a pastor to people who are married to unbelievers. It's discouraging. And Paul says, hey, how do you know what might happen? God might do something great there. Here's some hope. And they should know that with faith and patience, they can look to God to work in their present circumstances as difficult as those circumstances might be. But might I add one other thing? Christians who are married to unbelievers should also know what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, that you're not going to win your unbelieving spouse to the Lord with your words. Stop preaching to them. 
Let your life of love and godliness be the message that they hear. You know what? God can bring somebody else to preach to him. He's not limited, right? God can do that. But God only has one spouse for them to show them love and godliness only the way that a spouse can. Peter says, that they may be one without a word. Isn't that great? Without a word. It's almost as if Peter's saying, and pardon my thing, shut up! (laughs) Let the Lord work in their heart and you just show them lives of love and godliness. Friends, I told you that this chapter is, uh, wow, there's a lot here. And haven't we covered a lot already this evening? We're only halfway done. So let's save the next half for next week, where Paul is going to deal with other very, very important issues having to do with marriage. And next time he's going to talk a lot more about this whole issue of singleness. Hey, singles, this is it next week. He's going to really deal with the issue of being unmarried before the Lord. Tonight it's focused more on situations of marriage. Next week he focuses a lot more on Christians who are unmarried and how they should live and walk before the Lord. So let's pray and ask God to really um, impress us on our hearts.